Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jana Byers, and we're here today with Allison Phipps, Professor in Gender Studies at the University of Sussex, to talk about her newest book, Me Not You, The Trouble with Mainstream Feminism, just out in 2020 with the University of Manchester Press. Hello, Allison. Hi. Ah, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm so happy to be invited on. Ah, it's a wonderful. So how are you today? How's Brighton today? It's good. It's cold. It's grey. But, you know, Brighton's always nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cold and grey. It's the season. Uh, are you teaching this spring? I'm not actually. I'm on research leave, which is really lovely. I've just finished um, something which your listeners will probably have no idea about, which is lucky for them, um, the research excellence framework um, for my department at Sussex, which is a big exercise that's done every seven years to assess the research in all the universities in um, England and Wales. And um, it's a big job. So I've just finished that and I'm on research leave now. Oh, God, that sounds brutal actually mm, it is um yeah and I'm, I'm sure but I'm sure the information will be used to the good of the educational system I'm not sure <laughs> I'm not sure it's a bit like I mean I, I'm if your listeners are from the UK it's a bit like the Ofsted of UK higher education um which kind of is not it's it's a kind of a system of assessment and competitive awarding of funding um league tables that kind of thing um so it's um it's kind of a uh, well an unnecessary evil but it's something that we have to do. <laughs> sure. Uh, all right. Well, let's uh, we can take some time from that to talk about this really fun stuff. All right. Great. So let's just jump in. So the first thing I want to do is set this current work in the context of your kind of intellectual trajectory. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at your first book, Women in Science, Engineering, and Technology: Three Decades of UK Initiatives, which was Trentham Books, twenty. 2008. Yes. Yeah. And it looks at what you call the mixed results of the UK's attempts to address gender disparity STEM in STEM fields through policy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And six years later, good turnaround, by the way. <laughs> Thanks. It's uh, <laughs> really impressive. We see the politics of the body, gender mm. in a neoliberal and neoconservative age, Polity Press 2014. And this award-winning book really gets at the way feminists, for lack of a better way to group these people, find themselves negotiating a tight passage between like the Scylla and Charybdis of neoconservatives and neoliberals. Mm. All right. So you've published a number of articles on these topics in between the books. And all of this combines to showcase a career that's interested in the way politics and culture regarding gender mix and play it on the ground. Is that a fair assessment? Yes. I think that's a very fair assessment. I think I've always been interested in the doing of feminism Mm -hmm. um, and the kind of assumptions underpinning that, but also how effective it is, who it includes, who it leaves out, et cetera. Right. Okay. Um, And then you've landed here with Me Not You. Great title. Um, And I see a clear progression in your work, I think. And I'd like to hear what you have to say about this. How did you come to write this book at this moment in history and at this moment in your intellectual life? Mm, I mean, it's um, it's kind of the product of a long journey, really, which started before the politics of the body, because I have been a kind of scholar activist around sexual violence for about 15 years. 
focusing mainly on violence against students and violence within the university um, environment. And um, so that started in 2006, uh, because when I started my job at Sussex as head of gender studies, students would come and they would tell me things. Um, and I would be concerned. And so I did some kind of pilot research at Sussex around the experiences of students there, um, over which I almost lost my job, but that's another story. Um, And then I started working with our National Union of Students, um, who really produced the first national survey of women's experiences of sexual harassment and violence. Um, And after that, they commissioned me to do a study with Isabel Young on lad culture and how that kind of framed sexual violence in universities. So we did that. And that really kind of started a big kind of explosion um, of concern. There was a big media response to it. Um, Lots of activism started to kind of come from the ground up, largely thanks to the NUS who created a strategy and and. um, facilitated loads of initiatives. So all of a sudden, all these people were trying to address lad culture and sexual violence in universities, which was brilliant. Um, But I started to feel quite uneasy with what we were doing and what we were asking for, who we were focusing on. So it was a lot about policy work. It was a lot about training. um, And it was a lot about getting men punished and excluded. So kind of naming and shaming um, and excluding the bad men from the institution. Um, And then kind of towards the end of that journey, obviously Me Too happened, which was a similar sort of dynamic in the mainstream. I mean, obviously Tarana Burke's original vision for Me Too was quite different, but when it went viral as a hashtag, it was very much about naming and shaming. um, And it often kind of wanted quite punitive solutions. So either sack them or send them to prison. Um, And I felt something isn't right about this. Um, Something doesn't quite sit right. But but the thing for me, I think, was also Brexit. Um, Because a year before 2016, um, the UK had voted to leave the European Union and all this kind of white supremacist politics, which had been bubbling away, suddenly came to the surface. And so I was thinking a lot more about whiteness and race, which I admit I came to very late in my intellectual journey. And Me Too and Brexit suddenly kind of got all jumbled up in my mind. And I started to consider what the role of whiteness was in this mainstream feminism um, and how kind of the white and middle class background of most of the activists might be informing their politics. Um, And I guess that's how I got there. Mm -hmm. I think that's how my mind works. I kind of make connections between things quite a lot that you might not necessarily put together. Mm. Uh, That's a good trait in a scholar. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to talk about this. um, I think you've hinted on it, your own positionality, Mm. being a white woman writing about white feminism. And in your introduction, very early, you write, I am concerned, as some readers might also be that in critiquing whiteness from within, I'm trying to absolve myself of my own. I am worried that I am trying to be one of the good white people who perform what feminist scholar Sarah Ahmad calls a whiteness that is anxious about itself and sees that as anti-racism, unquote. 
Now, this is about an as honest a discussion as I've seen on this issue. And I'd like it if you could talk about it a little bit more for our listeners. Like, how do you navigate this position? How do you as a white feminist talk about white feminism without intentionally contributing to the problem? Mm. Without reconstituting feminism as white feminism, for mm. instance. Yeah, I mean, that is a real risk. And I'm not sure that it's possible to navigate that successfully. Um, I think it probably depends on how your work is read. Um, I think it maybe depends on kind of where you position your work in relation to other work. Because, you know, yes, absolutely. If you talk about the mainstream movement as white, you are sort of erasing all of the other feminisms that have traveled under the sign of Me Too, for example. Um, but I do think it's important to critique that white mainstream because it is so dominant. Um, and it does have such an influence, not just on the kind of media discourse, but on policy and on the initiatives. If you look at what we're doing about sexual violence in the mainstream, it's mm -hmm. largely kind of fed by that. So I'm not sure... Um, I think the way I've always chosen to navigate it, which is the way I navigate everything, um, which sometimes gets me in trouble, actually, um, is just to be in incredibly straightforward about it um, and to say, I realise that this is how it might be read, but this is not my intention. Um, and to kind of signal, I mean, what I hope for the book is that it will be read in kind of um, combination with other types of books um maybe in combination with books that explore the other some of the other mo movements around me too um in latin america for example or in india you know the dalit feminist movement in india which really kind of came came to prominence um during me too as um both a critique of mainstream Indian feminism, where there's a lot of parallels actually with white feminism that I write about, but also as a movement unto itself, which has its own politics and solutions and analyses of sexual violence. So I guess I think this is just one contribution um, and I would not want this to be seen as the definitive text on a kind of sexual violence and feminism at all. Um, and I mm -hmm. guess negotiating that for myself as well, um, I use the same strategy just to be really straightforward about it um, and to say I am a white woman writing about white feminism. I hope that in the book I don't give the impression that I think I'm any better um, because I'm not. Um, I'm writing about this from the inside and I've been on a journey with it and I'm still on a journey with it. But also I think that you have to accept that not everybody will like what you write. Um, mm -hmm. And some people will hate it for the wrong reasons, maybe because it touches a nerve in them um, and makes them feel sensitive. And some people will hate it for all the right reasons. You know, I'm sure there are some feminists of color who are thinking, who do you think you are? Which is perfectly valid, you know. Yeah. And, and you can't help how it's read. You can't help what happens to it after it goes out there. No. Um, you know, and this is, I find this, I find this very difficult and it's a thing I talk about with my students a great deal. Um, you just have to be as good as you can. Mm. You have to do as well as you can. You have to be as honest as you can, as critical as you can, mm. right? And trust that thinking about the issues is better than not thinking about the issues, I think. Absolutely. I mean, somebody said to me um, a long, long time ago, never be afraid to speak your truth. And I think that is really, really good advice. We're all on a journey. Um, you know, and it's not for any of us to kind of look down on somebody else's journey. And all you can do is keep thinking, keep 
kind of critiquing. Um, I guess the other thing I wanted to say about the book is that I know that some people might read it as one of those kind of whiteness self-help manuals, um, <laughs> which is not intended to be either. I mean, I'm very much focused on political action um, and helping people to evolve their political action. Um, I would not want to be kind of one of those scholars of whiteness who's all about the navel gazing. I think, you know, we do have to, obviously we have to look at ourselves, um, but we have to turn our focus outwards to look at what we're doing in the world as well. Um, And all you do is what you can. And I do think that sometimes we can also beat ourselves up for not doing enough. I often do that. I often kind of, you know, tell myself I'm not doing enough. I should be doing more. I should be doing more. But I think the problem is that not enough people are doing a little bit. So those of us who want to do things in the world end up taking on much more than our share. Um, and I think that's where that's where the white guilt comes in sometimes. You kind of feel as though you have to work yourself into the ground to make up for all these injustices that are being perpetrated um, in the name of whiteness. And that's no good either. Right. Yeah. Um, let's jump to politics, right? Um, you talk about pol- political whiteness. Can you define that for our listeners? Yeah, I wanted to um, use the term political whiteness because we've we've talked quite a lot about white feminism, haven't we, in the media in recent years? I can't remember when it first kind of became a thing in the media, but it's been around for a few years as a kind of way of describing a feminism that focuses on white women and their concerns or our concerns um, and doesn't really cater to women of colour and especially black women. Um, But I wanted to dig a little bit deeper than that because, um, as I said before, when I was thinking about this, Me Too and Brexit and Trump and all of that kind of got muddled up in my head and mixed up in my head. Um, And I actually started to see parallels between the mainstream white feminism of Me Too and the backlash against feminism. I also started to see parallels between the more kind of reactionary anti-trans and anti-sex work feminisms Mm -hmm. and the far right, which have actually not, they're not just parallels either, they're actual material relationships. So political whiteness was my way of understanding some of those parallels. Um, And it's kind of about um, the way in which whiteness or the position of white supremacy informs political action. Um, And it's not about skin colour necessarily. It's about relationships to white supremacy. So if you are engaged in a kind of politics which bolsters white Mm -hmm. supremacy, then it's possible that that could be called political whiteness. Um, And I can think of a lot of politicians of colour in our current Tory (laughs) cabinet who Mm -hmm. could be kind of described in the same way. So it it really Mm -hmm. isn't about skin colour. So the the first kind of aspect of it I saw was a kind of narcissism. So in um, white feminism, it's kind of around personal victimisation and the victimisation of people who look like me. Um, So that's why I called the book Me Not You, because it's very much focused on the victimization of a particular type of woman. 
Um, and then the second thing is a kind of very threatened positionality. So mainstream mm-hmm. white feminism is very much focused on victimhood. Um, and it's very much a politics which is focused on victimhood rather than, you know, for instance, solidarity. Um, and the third thing was um, a kind of a will to power. So I need to feel safe. I need justice or perhaps I need revenge regardless of the impact of that on other people. And I'm not talking about Harvey Weinstein here. I'm talking about more marginalised people. So this feminism is about kind of gaining power, not dismantling it, um, if that makes sense. And that kind of links in with the backlash. So you can see Brexit and Trump was all about a certain kind of white victimisation. You know, so it, it kind of... Obviously, the victimhood of Me Too is real. You know, there's people, there's women who've experienced sexual violence those experiences are very real I'm not saying they're not but what I'm interested in is what they do in the world Um, Mm -hmm. and and this is not necessarily the fault of the survivors either who are disclosing these experiences it kind of they get caught up in this media vortex um, and then they start doing things which perhaps the survivors aren't even in in control of Um, so that was the other kind of key part of my analysis was that, you know, this outrage economy of the media Mm -hmm. turns these experiences in, into something else. Um, and then, you know, this political whiteness can get quite reactionary when we talk about anti-trans and anti-sex work feminism. So my victimization is the most important thing. So I will view all other forms of politics in terms of how they impact on me. Um, and I'll reject the demands of more marginalised groups if they make me feel unsafe. Um, and then the will to power in that becomes about defining what a woman is, what a woman is, what a feminism is, what feminism should focus on. It gets very, very threatened. So if you disagree with me, you're my enemy. Um, if you highlight aspects of my privilege, you're ignoring the the ways that I've been victimised, et cetera, et cetera. And then it becomes a very... Um, a very kind of violent perspective in in a lot of ways. Um, And that type of reactionary feminism has a lot of ideological links, but also material links with the far right. And I know you're aware of all of this already, the ways in which anti-trans feminists in particular have, you know, financial links with far right groups. Yeah. Uh, Which, you know, and we've seen this, this is not new, these strange bedfellows. Uh, you know, if I'm thinking about the porn debates of the 80s, mm. for instance, Definitely. but um, it, it does seem to be uh, this there's this resurgence. So I'd like to talk about um, kind of the the violence. OK, and so very early on, you write in your introduction, I'm going to quote here. A key premise of this book is that acts, threats, and allegations of sexual violence are all tools of oppression. Mm. Sexual violence is terror. So is the way it is tackled and policed and white women's safety is used to justify violence against marginalized communities. And I feel like this is, this is a key premise of the book. And I'm wondering if you could comment on this and talk about how this is a challenge for mainstream feminist movements or a challenge to mainstream feminist movements. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Got your happy price, price line. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that hasn't really been done in kind of mainstream fem- feminist activism or kind of academic theory so much is to put the analysis of kind of acts and threats of sexual violence together with the analysis of allegations and punishment of sexual violence. Um, Certainly not in kind of white feminist theory. There are feminists of colour and black feminists. So Angela Davis's book, Women, Race and Class, does this Mm -hmm. very, very effectively in relation to black women. Um, But white feminists have have really sort of steered clear of this. Um, And I understand why. Um, because when you start to look at acts and threats of sexual violence together with allegations and punishment of sexual violence, you are traveling very close to the kind of false allegations trope that is used to dismiss survivors. Um, Mm -hmm. And white feminism in particular has operated with a sort of a moral imperative to believe survivors um, which is absolutely understandable the, given the way that survivors are disbelieved and trashed and experience mm. a kind of second rape. Um, black feminism has not operated so much with that kind of principle of believe survivors. And I think the reason for that is because in the history of the world, um, and especially colonialism and slavery, allegations of sexual violence have been used to perpetrate violence against colonized, racialized, and especially black men, um, and often allegations made by white women. Now, these allegations sometimes might have been true, but oftentimes they weren't true, um, or oftentimes it was consensual relationships between white women and men of color, or especially black men, um, that when they were found out were turned into kind of rape allegations. Um, So um, I think what I was trying to do was to kind of think all of that together um, and to think of it in structural terms as well, in terms of how the mainstream feminist movement is still kind of using its victimhood um, sometimes to support very oppressive systems. Um, So the criminal punishment system is the kind of go-to solution of mainstream white feminism. But who does that system really hurt? And who does that system really target? It doesn't target people like Harvey Weinstein. I mean, I know he's in prison now, but how many women had to accuse him in order for him to be um, to, to end up there? Um, the criminal punishment system is designed to target Um, communities of colour, working class communities, oftentimes who are kind of the same thing, um, black communities in particular, to kind of put away the lives that have been deemed disposable by capitalism. Um, And mainstream white feminism kind of participates in that dynamic. And it often justifies itself as punching up at privileged white men. I mean, most of the men who were named and shamed in Me Too were privileged white men. But the criminal punishment system is not designed to punch up at those men. It's designed to protect those men Mm -hmm. and to punch down on more marginalised people. Um, Mariam Carber, who um, endorsed the book and who is one of my absolute heroes in feminism, um, makes a really useful distinction between crime and harm. So crime Mm -hmm. is not a measure of harm. Really, there are lots of things that are not harmful to anyone, which are crimes. 
Um, and there are lots of things that are incredibly harmful, which are not crimes. Um, and that is because crime ultimately is a kind of sorting mechanism for capitalism. Um, it allows us to dispose of and regulate and discipline communities um, which are deemed to be a risk. Um, and the you know the history of the police in America, which came out of the sort of runaway slave patrols, kind of shows you um, what the criminal punishment system is for. Um, so I'm really arguing that in the end, mainstream feminism kind of supports rather than undoes the root causes of sexual violence because the criminal punishment system comes out of the same systems of global oppression, inequality and violence that sexual violence comes out of. Um, and also you can't, um, you can't kind of have a feminism which focuses on the criminal punishment system which is inclusive um, because for black people, black women, women of colour, um, criminal punishment means oppression. It doesn't mean protection. Right. I mean, and as you point out in your very next paragraph, um, this leads to the other key premise of this book, that being a victim and being a perpetrator are not mutually exclusive. Mm, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and they can absolutely exist together. I mean, I think the mm. other thing about mainstream white feminism is it does this splitting between victims victims and perpetrators in which you can only be one or the other. Um, mm -hmm. So if we start talking about how white people perpetrate white supremacy or benefit from white supremacy, then the assumption is that, oh, we can't be victims as well. Of course we can. You mm -hmm. know, you can be a victim of sexual violence and still be a perpetrator of race and class supremacy. And we can perpetrate these things you know, unwittingly, we can perpetrate these things and we can't not perpetrate them. These are systems we benefit from. Um, so it's not it's not about individual behavior. I mean, the other thing I want to clarify is that I'm not at all saying that individual survivors should not call the police. I think individual survivors need to do whatever they need to do to feel safe. Um, what I'm saying is that the mainstream movement needs to think about alternatives and it needs to think about ways to address sexual violence which are more inclusive i would like survivors to have more choice than criminal punishment or nothing um, mm -hmm. or media yeah. exposure or nothing um you know and i think the mainstream movement has not been involved in things i mean lots of other feminist movements have but the mainstream white feminist movement is not thinking about any of these alternatives it's just focused on strengthening the status quo and the state mm -hmm. quo is violent in itself. Well, and there's a disinterest, right, between separating out the experience of individuals from the experience of the system. Mm -hmm. White mainstream feminist, feminism is systemic. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. And I, let's talk about carceral feminism. Mm -hmm. um, could you can you define that for our listeners and talk about how that plays in its relationship with Me Too? Sure. Yeah. So carceral feminism, I think, was first defined by Elizabeth Bernstein, um, I could be wrong on that, and it's basically a way to describe that feminism which sees the criminal punishment system as a way to achieve gender justice. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very much focused on more police, um, longer sentences, more convictions, sometimes more prisons, um, criminalising sex work, um, trafficking, those kinds of things, um, very much focused on the kind of punishment of things after they've happened rather than addressing the systems which produce them in the first place. Um, so it kind of puts the cart before the horse in a way. Mm 
And carceral feminism has been very much identified with white feminist movements for the very kind of simple reason that, you know, for a lot of black women, black feminists, um, women of colour, the criminal punishment system is not the answer. You know, I mean, they're they're seeing their, you know, their their brothers, their dads, their sons, you know, sometimes themselves um, coming at the sharp end of that system. They know what it's for. Um, so carceral feminism tends to be very much the preserve of white and middle class women. Um, yeah. Um, and and me too, um, me too in the mainstream, the kind of hashtag me too was very much a carceral feminist movement. It was focused on, um, kind of prison, um, criminal punishment, legal redress as being the answer to sexual violence, or it was focused on kind of getting perpetrators fired, which, Mm -hmm. um, I should probably mention as well, um, I'm not saying that that is a carceral technique. It's not. Um, People who perpetrate sexual violence do not have a right to keep their jobs. Um, And again, I kind of quote Mariam Carber, who says there's a difference between punishment and consequences. So losing your job is a consequence. Um, and, a, and an appropriate consequence for perpetrating sexual violence. Never being able to work again or feed yourself or, or feed your kids, that's a punishment. Or having your liberty taken away, that's a punishment. Um, so losing your job is a consequence. But my concern with that is where do they go? Um, so these men that got fired as a result of Me Too, where did they go? Um, I'm assuming they got other jobs. I'm also mm-hmm. assuming that they didn't really change their behavior because punishment or kind of losing your job is not necessarily a kind of incentive to change your behavior without support. Um, So I'm assuming that a lot of them are are just behaving the exact same way um, towards other women in different jobs. Um, And my, my ultimate concern about that, especially with academia and other sort of high status institutions, is that ultimately we might outsource our perpetrators onto other industries, Mm -hmm. possibly lower status industries where women have less rights, less protections. Um, So that's back to the me, not you, isn't it? It's Mm -hmm. we don't want these bad men, but we don't really care where they're going to go next. Um, And I'm not suggesting that individuals themselves don't care. Mm -hmm. It's the movement. That's the message from the movement. Um, And that's, you know, that seems to me to be, I don't know whether this will translate to different national contexts, but it seems to be to be more like nimbyism um, Mm -hmm. than radical politics. Sure. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think this also, this this hints at another issue that I see in your book that I really want to talk about, which is... uh, you know, outrage, mm-hmm. rage, anger, outrage, the refusal to play nice, the refusal to be civil. This plays a huge role in modern feminism mm. um, in modern coverage of feminism. Mm. Um, but I'd like to talk through this. And I think um, the best way is to start to talk about what is acceptable anger or marketable anger. Who gets mm. to be angry about this? And how do you talk about this anger? Yes, that is a very good question. Um, so who gets to be angry? I mean, you know, there's there's a big literature in feminism about anger. Um, and some of it's about the power of anger. I mean, anger is incredibly powerful. Right. And I can kind of recommend Mona El-Sahawi, who also endorsed um, Me Not You, her recent book, um, which is I th- called The Seven Necessary Sins for girls and women, anger being one of them, you know, anger is incredibly powerful and especially in a world that tells women to play nice. Um, However, 
whose anger is more palatable, whose anger gets to be um, kind of heard, whose anger becomes a kind of outrage um, in these media circles. And that mm-hmm. does tend to be middle class and upper class white women. Um, and we kind of can go to the trope of the angry black woman, um, which is something that's sort of used by white women as well as by white men. You know, I mean, white women have often told black women that they're too aggressive, they're too angry. Um, And obviously that draws on kind of very deeply embedded colonial stereotypes about black people as more aggressive, um, black people as dangerous. So who gets to be angry in public? Um, And um, Ruby Hamad in her book, um, White White Tears, Brown Scars, um, which is also an excellent book, she talks about um, the allegations of Me Too and whose allegations Harvey Weinstein um, bothered to refute. And it was two women of colour. Um, and she argues that that is because women of colour are easier to discredit. So they're not kind of the perfect victims. They're also seen as too aggressive and too angry. Um, mm. So in my book, I talk about that, but I also talk about um, how anger becomes outrage and what that does and how that sort of becomes a process that's enough in itself. It becomes a kind of catharsis um, from which we then move on. Um, so one of the things about white feminist anger is that it's often anger on behalf of the self or on behalf of another individual rather than on behalf of the collective. Um, so these stories kind of make it into media circles and become a kind of um, a kind of cycle of outrage. Mm-hmm. Um, we all then we all kind of post angry hashtags. We all sign open letters. We sign petitions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Maybe the individual in question gets fired, and then everything moves on. Um, and outrage doesn't really give as much space for kind of sustained analysis. Um, it's very often focused on individual people, individual incidents. Um, we get our rage out and then we move on to something else and we're angry about something else. Um, and I think the dynamics of social media have a lot to do with that as mm-hmm. well. Um, you know, we think we've done activism if we've signed that petition or signed that open letter. Um, and sometimes these things work, you know, but very often they don't. Well, and if we think about how important um, the marketability of this anger is, like who's who is who are you going to watch repeatedly on YouTube, uh-huh. <laughs> right? Yeah. If you think about this, this also creates a space where um, we hearken back to the earliest suffragettes, where like white men who've been accused have space to be outraged mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. <laughs> And so we have this media portrayal. We have like this whole right wing media that's deeply invested in the outrage of these poor men who've been victimized by angry women. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, yeah, the other thing I kind of really started to think was that Me Too at times just became a kind of argument between privileged white women and privileged white men about who the real victims were. Um, so you get these stories accusing these privileged white men and then these white men come out and use their platforms to claim that it's a witch hunt and they've been victimized. Um, 
And then the whole kind of cycle starts again. And that's one of the problems with outrage, but it's also one of the problems with media markets. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think not just the right-wing media, but the whole media because of the way that it works, because of the, the kind of the way that it's now funded, especially online media, these markets are incredibly nihilistic. Um, So as long as you get your clicks, likes and shares, as long as you get your advertising revenue, um, then it doesn't matter what the substance of the story is. And I've seen it happen quite a few times, even before Me Too, with survivors um, from universities who've disclosed in the media, and there's been a flurry of outrage. And then the person they've accused, who happens to have a story that the media like better, talks to the media, and all of a sudden they're the hero and the survivor gets vilified. So one of my big concerns is that sometimes when institutions have let us down profoundly, which they do almost invariably, survivors will see media outrage as justice when it's not. And they can be dropped like a hot potato if it turns out that the story of the perpetrator is a juicier scoop. Mm, So frustrating. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's not the fault. I mean, there are some amazing individual journalists who really care about the issues. It's not their fault. It's the way the media works. Sure. Well, and it's the way technology works now, yeah. right? Yeah. This is this is a problem that really feeds on itself. And I, I perhaps there was a way that this could not have become our new technology and having the 24-hour news cycle and mm-hmm. Facebook could have not become this monster, but it's it hard is. to imagine. Yeah. No, that's right. That's right. Um, and that's the kind of dynamic of mainstream feminism. So we kind of, we disclose our stories in these media outlets. They become kind of capital for the corporate media. Outrage, outrage, outrage. Institutions then panic because they're worried about the damage to their brands from having this high profile perpetrator. So they get rid of the perpetrator. I call that institutional airbrushing. Um, they airbrush out the blemish to make their brands look good again. The perpetrator goes somewhere else and all the rotten systems are left intact. And then we start all over again. Um, and there is something profoundly unsatisfying and and profoundly um, kind of not radical about that dynamic. Um, and I'm not saying it's the fault of survivors at all. This is, you know, often our only option, you know. This is, this is the, these are the choices we have. And that's, I mean, and this is, we're we're talking about really deep systemic issues Mm. that for a long time, I mean, most of human history, Mm. honestly, have managed to continue unabated because of their ability, uh, because of bread and circuses, because of any number of things, right? Mm. We're we're talking about white supremacy, global capitalism, a colonial world. Like we're talking about huge systemic forces. How can a single survival face that? Yeah, and it's not, and it shouldn't be our responsibility. It shouldn't be the no. responsibility of the survivor. I mean, it, it needs to be a collective responsibility. We need to do something about this together. Um, and it's huge, you know. I mean, it's sexual violence kind of sits at the intersection of, you know, patriarchy, capitalism, colonialism, all of these huge systems. Um, And even when you kind of devolve it down to very micro levels, like within the university, for example, these systems are still at play. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's what needs to be unpicked. Mm -hmm. 
and your book does a good job in your very first chapter, Gender in a Right Moving World, does this great job of pointing out that things are not getting better. Mm. No. Uh, they're perhaps the opposite, right? Yeah. They're, you know, you paint a very convincing picture of a global, cultural, political, economic war on women. Mm. Yes, very much so. Um, well, it's kind of a war on women. Um, you know, misogyny abounds, sexual violence abounds, these kind of horrible paleoconservatives, religious conservatives, far right, you know, they're all gaining more and more power and they hate women. But so much, so much. They, I mean, you know, Trump. How many? How many allegations was it? Nineteen allegations of yeah. sexual assault during his presidential campaign, um, and he still got elected president. So there's a lot of people that hate women. There's also a lot of white women who seem to prefer perpetuating white supremacy over voting. You know, in solidarity with other women. Let me add. Um, but also, what this far right movement does is it uses women's safety as a political tool Mm -hmm. to further its wars on more marginalized people, which which again is a dynamic that is very, very old um, and kind of has has its roots in colonialism. So -hmm. you have this situation where these men who are happy to abuse women themselves with impunity are violently protecting women, white women, from the others. Um, Mm -hmm. And that, you know, and I think white women some white women feel a sense of power through that protection, but really it means that we're property. Absolutely. And it it further, I I mean, an an essential part of protecting women is convincing women that they're responsible for their safety, Mm. that staying indoors and dressing well, you know, this will keep drinking. Yeah. Don't, don't be a slut, you know, don't drink too much. Don't flirt with, with other men. Absolutely. I mean, it's what, um, was it, I I think it was Susan Griffin called it the great patriarchal protection racket, you know? So in order to protect, in order to protect you, you have to stay at home with me and you have to do everything I want, but actually I'm the person that's most likely to abuse you. Um, and these, these kind of powerful white men are kind of playing out that dynamic. Um, and some white women appear to be happy to be part of that, which is also scary. So, and I think that, that this means that mainstream white feminism has to kind of wake up um, because those of us who care about the fact that our safety is being used to criminalise, vilify immigrants, trans people, whoever need to start saying, not in my name, mm-hmm. you know, um, and this means that movements like Me Too need to have a much more intersectional and much more holistic analysis of, yes, we need to keep women safe. Yes, we need, women need um, to be safe from sexual violence, but we also need to be aware that this idea of women's safety is a, is a political football at the moment, and it's being used for some very bad ends. Mm-hmm. And by, you know, this this war on women's concomitant feminist resurgence in some ways, mm. Me Too in some ways, mm. becomes part of this, yes. these bad, you know, yeah. a political football for bad ends. Absolutely it does. And I think we just have to see that in the round. And that goes back to, um, I mean, I've, I call these kind of the vectors of sexual violence, the acts, threats, allegations and punishment. You know, they all do things in the world and they all need to be understood together. That doesn't mean that we don't disclose our experiences of sexual violence. It doesn't mean that we don't ask for consequences for people who've perpetrated sexual violence. But it does mean we have to be more politically savvy about Mm -hmm. 
the way that sexual violence is also taken up and politicized by people that we don't really like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we need to talk about the overwhelming importance of sexual purity and what that's about too. Yes. That's a whole other discourse. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely it is. And that sort of links in with the kind of the idea of the white, the bourgeois white woman as the kind of ideal victim. um, Right. (laughs) Pardon me. Um, yeah, the, of, the, the you know, of best, violence, the, the ultimate um, demonstration, which is still of very much femininity. at play. You know, it's at play in whose stories were heard in Me Too, but it's also at play in in these far right kind of seeming concerns with women's safety. Um, yeah, and on on like a very physical safety, and then on this, just I I want to um, we're kind of we're closing in on the end, and I want to talk about your last chapter uh-huh. where we see like there is a concern about the safety of like the definition of women. Yes. So your your last chapter, feminism in the far right, is really hard to get through, and this is no fault of yours. It's a great <laughs> chapter. It's it's really well written. It's just hell to read. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> God no. It's just it's an appropriate demonstration of where we are right now Mm. but on one hand there's this enumeration of like the anti-trans people the anti-gender studies people the anti-queer folks it's a laundry list of the reactionary right wing and it's exhausting to think about (laughs) there's just so much hate and misery and what have Mm. um but like and then you get to think about the importance of respectability and the veil of decency that makes the makes privilege like makes clear what privilege does. Mm. So I would just like it if we could take a couple minutes a little to talk about two of the most pernicious manifestations of what you, the far right feminism, which is like the anti-trans feminism and anti-sex work feminism. Mm. Um, and I think these movements really exemplify the bourgeois white supremacist nature of mainstream feminism. Mm. Um, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's um, that's kind of what draws them together. In a lot of ways, I mean, they're also drawn together by um, demographics in the sense that a lot of um, there's a lot of crossover mm-hmm. between the trans and sex working communities. Um, but the the idea of kind of bourgeois whiteness and the idea also that bourgeois white womanhood is real womanhood and mm-hmm. all other types of womanhood don't really measure up. That's a very very colonial idea, um, and that was used in order to kind of discipline and oppress colonized communities kind of throughout that colonial project. Um, So I think that's right. And I think that, you know, this is also about being politically savvy. And I think that when you have a feminism that's based around the idea of real womanhood, first of all, that's incredibly transphobic. um, Mm. But also what other things does it do? What other types of women have been excluded from the idea of the real woman throughout history and still, you know, um, and there's lots of women who don't meet that criterion. Um, So I think that this is it's a very bourgeois white politics. Um, And I think I say somewhere in the book, you know, the unnatural woman, um, meaning the trans woman and Mm -hmm. the unrespectable woman, meaning the sex worker, can never be real women. And you see that in the kind of discourse. So this anti-trans and anti-sex work feminism is very much focused on sexual violence. And it's focused on listening to survivors of sexual violence who either um, feel triggered by the idea of a trans woman in their space with them, whether that's a bathroom or a women's refuge, or they feel... um, 
that the sex industry, with its commodification of the female body, contributes to a culture in which women are sexually abused. And I have some sympathy with that argument, as do a lot of sex workers, or they maybe have survived working in the sex industry and their horrible experiences, which again are very real, are used as part of this politics. Um, And often what the kind of slogan is, is listen to survivors, you know, listen to survivors. Survivors don't want trans women in, in their space. Survivors are deeply upset by the sex industry and they want it legislated out of existence. But I ask, well, which survivors? Which survivors are we talking about? You know, so that, again, is a kind of a way to claim womanhood and claim survivorship on behalf of a certain type of woman. Um, and the trans women who are survivors, the sex workers who are survivors but are still working in the sex industry and need to work in the sex industry in order to survive, um, don't become part of the the kind of um, the group of survivors that we're talking about here. So we see the weeping Madonna versus the unfeeling whore. You know, we see the weeping survivor versus the menacing predator who's the trans woman. Um, and neither of those neither the trans woman or the sex worker is kind of entitled to claim survivorship on on her own behalf, if that makes sense. So it's a very kind of clever and insidious and violent political manoeuvre. Based, um, you know, on the the, inc- the sanctity of white tears. Right? Yeah, exactly. Based on the sanctity of white tears, based on the sanctity of the white bourgeois female body and based on the right to kind of define what a woman is, to define what feminism is and and to define what feminism should focus on um, as well, which again is a deeply, deeply colonial and probably Mm -hmm. also quite an English mindset. I don't think it's a coincidence that trans-exclusionary feminism seems to be its most strong in England um, and Scotland actually. Um, in mm-hmm. some ways, um, I think there's something about um, kind of Anglo-Saxon superiority um, in the kind of the English mindset, um, which again kind of um, dovetails in with Brexit, doesn't it? Um, mm-hmm. And trans-exclusionary feminism in particular is kind of a scarcity mindset. It's about hoarding resources. It's about shutting doors. It's about keeping the others out. Um, and again, it's in line with Brexit and and Trump and the other kind of movements of the contemporary far right. Hmm. That's an, I have not thought about this point that there's something perhaps particularly English about this colonial. Yes. But mm-hmm. the cult of domesticity that's developed in Victorian England mm. is probably linked here somehow. And that'll take some thinking. Yes, I think it definitely is. And that whole kind of idea of bourgeois womanhood as fragile, Mm -hmm. as threatened, as kind of more easily victimized. um, Mm -hmm. And the idea of womanhood as having particular characteristics. I mean, um, trans-exclusionary feminists kind of say that they're gender critical, but actually when you boil their rhetoric down, it's very, very gender essentialist. So mm-hmm. how, how are they going to decide who should be in the women's bathroom and who shouldn't be? They're going to use normative markers of gender. Um, it's really about the uterus, yeah. Yeah, or it's about how people look. I mean, there have been some cisgender women who don't look feminine enough for the anti-trans feminists who've been violently attacked in women's bathrooms. Um, so because how do you, you know, unless you're going to check everybody's pants, 
in in the bathroom, which would right. which would be sexual assault anyway. You know, unless you're going to sexually assault people in the bathroom yourself, <laughs> how are you? Yeah. How are you going to decide who belongs there and who doesn't? All you have is those visual markers of gender, which are incredibly stereotypical. Sure. Um, you know, yeah. so so this is not a gender critical position at all. It's a gender yeah. conservative position and a very kind of sex essentialist position. And it is, it's Victorian. It's yeah. incredibly Victorian. But I do think it's also, you know, the fact that trans exclusionary feminism has taken off a lot in the UK. I mean, Sophie Lewis is really good on this. Um, and there's a podcast with her. Um, I think politics theory other where she talks about this in quite a lot of detail in terms of the history of the the British feminist movement as well, um, which we don't have time to go into. But, you know, I do think there's something about the English mindset, um, you know, that that's inherent sense of superiority that comes with it um, that very much can be observed in this anti-trans feminism. Sure. And that, you know, and the, the, the white man's burden kind of implications yeah. there, it's about control as well. Like, so even, yeah, you're, we're, do, we're doing our best for you. Yes, it's very yeah. much focused on control, power and control, which is what sexual violence is about, you know, and I have some sympathy with that in the sense of when you have been sexually violated, it is very, very important to you to regain your power and control. Um, and, you know, therapeutic interventions with survivors focus on helping us to regain our power and control. But the problem is you can't do that through oppressing more marginalized people. You know, survivors need to be helped and supported to get what they need without kind of walking all over more marginalized people. Um, and there are ways to do that. There are certainly ways to do that. Let's uh, let's end on that hopeful note, shall we? That there are more helpful ways, yeah. and work work like yours is uh, is going to get us there. Oh, I, I hope. So. I don't know, but I I hope it makes a small step. You know, I mean, I I see my book as kind of a transitional object as well, mm -hmm. in a way, for people who maybe are new to this or maybe are new to thinking about sexual violence in a more holistic way. Um, mm -hmm. Hopefully, it might be a conduit towards engaging with you know, these other writers, all of these writers that I cite, writers who are writing now that I haven't had a chance to cite, who are much more clever than me. Um, so I kind of see it as, as a piece in the puzzle, um, which will kind of help people to put, put that puzzle together in their own mind. You are definitely doing good, good work here in, in, in all sorts, all, all meanings of good. Like this is an excellent book and I believe it is a helpful, like I believe this is a beneficial book. I'm so glad I read it. I'm so glad you wrote it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. That's really lovely to hear. So, hey, what's next? What are you working on now? Well, I suppose homeschooling. Yeah, <laughs> homeschooling two kids, um, struggling with long division, um, which is kind of bringing all kinds of trauma reactions back in me from when I had to do it. When my, when my dad tried to teach me long division and it was just awful. Um, so I'm doing that. Um, I'm also actually working on a new book. Um, so originally this book was supposed to be, um, me, not you, was supposed to come out out after a kind of a much bigger, much more academic book focusing on the politics of sexual violence. But we decided to swap them over because I thought I want to get these ideas out in the world sooner than that. So now I'm working on um, my next book, which is called Personal Business. Um, 
And it's about, again, the politics of sexual violence, but um, less about kind of whiteness in feminism, although that will be obviously a key thread in it, but it's more about what sexual violence does in the world. So really kind of digging into that idea of the kind of the four vectors of sexual violence, acts, acts, threats, allegations and punishment, and how they support racial capitalism and all its different manifestations, but also how kind of the mainstream feminist movement has internalized racial capitalism in a lot of its strategies. So it will kind of extend some of the arguments here, but also hopefully bring some new ones as well. Um, but it, it's it's not going to come out anytime soon because I don't have a lot of time between homeschooling and everything else. Sure. Well, you know, and just, uh, I, I, you know, we joke about this, right? But any day you just get up, manage to wash your face and brush your teeth. Like, that's well a done. win. Yeah, that's a win. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, We're all doing our best, aren't we? That's where we are in the world right now. Uh, the fact that you are continuing to to do any work at all is fantastic. Oh, well, thank um, you. Well, it keeps me sane. It keeps me sane. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's this moment where you get to go away and just uh, be out, you know, think about mm. wonderful, like, interesting things, if not wonderful things. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I will be in touch with the next book. This was a great conversation. Thank you for having me. It's been brilliant. Wonderful. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.